2: That was like prolonged.
3: Did yeah.
2: You, did you torture it?
3: Oh, it's worth it too. <laughs> what are we Ooh. drinking tonight? Oh, God, it smells so good. I am having a delightful Leinenkugel toasted bock.
4: Oh, good choice. That sounds very complicated. That's a good winter beer.
3: Oh, it's great. I'd never, I, I just discovered this uh, a couple of days ago. And uh, well, this is the last one. <laughs> I think I think
4: Lein and Kugel has one beer that I don't care for. Again, don't care for. Other than that, they pretty much knocked it out of the park. They
3: pretty much kill everything. Yeah. The summer shandy is not my favorite thing. Yeah, but uh, this and most everything else. Oh, the canoe paddler. Oh, the the, the snowdrift. is my favorite. Oh, yeah, that one's insane. God, I could drink like I could drink a fifty-five gallon drum of that stuff on a hot <laughs> summer day.
2: Oh. Well, I'm
3: sorry, was I supposed to say something else other than beer?
2: <laughs> beer! No, it's okay. We, we can move on. And we have Will the Thrill. I hate to
4: say it, but I'm not going to deviate from topic here.
2: <laughs> God, you guys. Seriously. Come
4: on, it's Figaro Mountain Brewing
2: Company. All right. Good stuff. Well, does anybody care it what all, I'm it all, it all. Does anybody care what I'm drinking?
4: LD, what are you drinking?
2: I am drinking a Tiesta tea. Ooh because they have generously sponsored us, which is kind of awesome. And I brought the box over because I was like, I don't, I want to be able to tell you guys what they sent us in our little fancy box because they, they sent us a lavender and chamomile, uh, the blueberry wild child, which we had, and we had the lavender chamomile and it was so good. We've got a nutty almond cream, fruity paradise, a passion berry jolt, Maui mango, a uh, chai love and lean green machine and so we've got a ton of these so thank you to the people at T for sending this box over because i'm super happy but, uh,
3: but but let me also tell you that in spite of what you might think based on what happens at the outset of every program i.e. that being will and i cracking beers and getting intoxicated this show is powered by tea because sitting right next to my my bottle of line and kugel toasted box is a uh very large yeti full of tea. Mm-hmm. I drink tea throughout the day. And if I didn't drink it during this podcast, I would fall asleep. I did during one episode. <laughs> it
2: well, is true. I, we needed to send you some more Tiesta tea yeah, because alive. they actually do have an energizer tea. Probably
3: which used. I could have I could have used during Croachy Part Four or whenever it was I dozed off. <laughs> dozed off.
2: You should have had the chai love, which is a Spiced chai black tea, and that is the energizer in the Tiesta tea family. And, Ooh,
3: spicy tea
2: and here's the thing it's all loose so once you go loose you never go bagged so no tea bagging aha work that in
4: and they do provide these lovely filters and they tell you how to make the tea so if anyone's like I don't know how to do loose leaf tea they will tell you
2: your so if you guys want to try some of the ETS to tea which is I'm not joking I am a. I I thought I was a lifting girl for life but here I am telling you guys, uh, TSTT is amazing. And so if you guys order it, you get 15% off your order by using our coupon code, which is rock heaven 15. Again, that is rock heaven 15 for TSTT. live loose baby. And uh, what is, uh,
3: what's, what's their uh,
2: website? It is tSTt.com. And uh, yeah, the holidays are coming, so like seriously, some of my family might just get some tea-based presents. I'm not, I'm not saying you're gonna get some tea-based presents, tea, but uh, using that Rock Heaven 15 discount code at checkout, just saying you might.
4: <laughs> and they have to use these holiday things too. Look at these gift sets. Yeah, it's the gift awesome. sets are
2: amazing. So yeah, check them out. And now on to something less awesome, which was that uh, we did have a death in the Rock family, which was. Um, Mick Rock,
5: Mm.
2: who was an incredible photographer, died on Thursday in a hospital at Staten Island. He was 72. And if you guys don't know his work, he did people like Lou Reed and David Bowie. He did one of the Aladdin same photo shoots, I believe. Uh, He shot Deborah Harry and he even shot like Snoop Dogg. So he was the man who shot the seventies because he caught all these iconic photos and I save this for last because he actually did the iconic Bohemian Rhapsody photo for Queen. Oh. So the one with the four of them and you know, the, the, kind of you, you, yeah, you know, the picture. So we, we do wish his family and, and friends thoughts and
3: prayers. And, and, you know, you, if you think back to the seventies, it wasn't like it is now where everybody walks around with a phone and a camera basically in their pocket and, can take pictures of everything so the people who documented that stuff we wouldn't have it otherwise yeah and you're also and you're also talking about conversely since everybody has a, a camera in their pocket they all think they're photographers and a lot of you aren't you suck yeah no you- people <laughs> like Mick Rock are actual real photographers and go back and look at some of that work and it's just it's phenomenal and thank god that, that he was there to capture some of that stuff
2: well, he's even shot more recent people like Lady Gaga. Like I said, um, Snoop Dogg and Rufus Wainwright.
5: Yeah.
2: That is not an easy name to say for a Southern woman. Rufus Wainwright. There we go. So uh, yeah, I mean, and, and the thing that you're talking about, photography, is it's also an intimate thing when you're talking about celebrities. So in the '70s, you know, people like Annie Leibovitz. And Mick Rock would have unfettered access to celebrities so he could get them at their most vulnerable, which was beautiful. And now a lot of times the celebrities are hiding because you said everybody has a camera and everybody thinks they're a photographer. And that is just not true. So your picture of, you know, Lady Gaga is never going to be as good, sorry, as, you know, Mick Rock's was. So,
3: well even even i who have to take pictures for as part of my job i always tell people when they'll refer to me as a photographer i'll say no 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 i'm not a photographer i'm a dude that takes pictures there's a really big difference (laughs) i am not a photographer your sister i'm a person who takes pictures because he has to (laughs) your
2: your sister is the photographer of the family well actually like i got it i got it from dad i really got it from my dad but uh but yeah we are the photographers in the family you're the writer of the family you know, we we know our strengths. So, um, and then uh, we didn't talk about this last week, but uh, number one, we got to go see the monkeys.
4: We did. They're f- one of their final. Yeah, our neighbors are yeah, happy about this. Our neighbors
2: are super happy about that. Um, yeah, we got to go see them, and they were amazing.
3: Great show. Like at the um, z- like at the zoo, or
2: <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, we went to the zoo, and were we you there the for monkeys. the poop flinging? Uh, they were actually guitar flinging. It was weird.
3: that's different
2: but yeah no it was it was phenomenal because the you know the the two that remain were hilarious they were so funny and i we're actually going to start a tiktok in the first video that is getting posted is my reaction to them doing daydream believer because i'm going to tell you i didn't expect to cry but i cried and then we also saw uh, Tick, Tick, Boom for all you musical nerds. Hint, hint, something might be coming for all the rent mm-hmm. heads and musical nerds. Um, and we watched Ghostbusters. And that was one of the best films I've ever seen in my whole life. And yeah. the character of Phoebe is just the best. She is the perfect character in any film. She's my favorite of all time. Please go see both those films.
3: Did I did nothing but uh, drink beer and watch football all weekend. But, um, <laughs> so, you know, a bit more adventurous to me, but I did discover LD that you and I have something in common with Other the great our... Robert Duvall. Really? <laughs> yes.
2: How, how do how do I work in Robert Duvall?
3: Robert Duvall somehow apparently is a huge Clemson Tiger football fan.
2: Very nice. Really? And,
3: and went to the Wake Forest game this past Saturday.
2: Did they, like, show him on TV or something?
3: I, I, I read it I, I, way after the fact, uh, like, early this afternoon. But, yeah, he, he is apparently a huge Clemson fan. He likes Dabo. He called and said he wanted to come look at the campus and tour the stadium and come to a game. And I don't think you tell Robert Duvall, no. I, I thought <laughs> I, he had a, a son or daughter that attended the school. Maybe that is the connection? He, he may have. Yeah. Yeah, There there's some, some odd uh, – Folks who who went there that you don't realize did like Dolph Lundgren. When he was awesome, when he was just
4: collecting degrees, he was like, "I'll get one there."
2: (laughs) Uh,
3: Yes, like he was, and and like he was, he majored in like biochemistry or something. He's got multiple masters. He speaks six languages. (laughs) Yeah. Um. But 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 all anybody'll ever remember him for is, "I must break you."
4: uh, That and He Man. Yes.
2: Yeah, so I guess you guys, uh, at this point, if you're already this deep into the episode, you are probably not just casual listeners of the the podcast. So you probably heard us talk about this last week where we're like, hey, we're going to pick three people, and those three people get to pick the artist that they want us to cover. And if it works out perfectly, we will... they will pick one host, and so not every not not TJ doesn't get all three of the.
3: It <laughs> please God, <no. laughs> TJ doing every episode for next year. Good yeah. night, everyone. Good night.
2: <laughs> He's gonna be doing it on his own. Um, So the three people that we picked, T, would you like to give your winner? So the winner of this basically uh will need to private messages on our Facebook page and tell us which host you want and what the subject you want now. If the host is already taken, you'll have to give us your second uh, or third choice because there's only three of us. Because our cat is not going to do it. I've already asked somebody,
3: and one of you is going to get stuck with me, and I'm sorry.
5: (laughs) Or Um, me?
2: That's that's terrible. I'm so sorry. Or me? (laughs) Oh no, we should just bring in someone else. To hire a host, yeah. (laughs) So, uh, T, who did you pick to pick a person? Who did I pick to pick
3: a person? I believe I'm going to go with a uh, listener who contributed uh, heavily during our Tom Petty series uh, and has been kind of a fixture on our uh, social media since then, and that would be listener Thea. Congrats yeah, right. hey, Thea. Thea.
5: Yeah. Woo. So she gets uh,
3: to pick uh, the artist, an artist that we will cover next year or in 2027 or whenever we finish with Michael Jackson, <laughs> and um. <laughs> and the and the host who will uh, cover said uh topic
2: excellent all right mr hickey and yeah,
4: when, when we conclude the 46 part retrospective on michael jackson <laughs> yeah. so i i have actually selected someone who has engaged through another listener and has been very active and really gave a tip of the hat to our recent jim croce series very involved and i'm giving the nod to none other than washington's own native son Christopher Todd Davis. Come on down, Christopher. You get to pick a subject for us.
2: All right. And I'm going way out on left field. Uh, I actually picked her because she has a fantastic profile photo. And her her contribute, her contribute contributing post was just full of excitement and fervor. And I went with Ava Schwischer. Yeah, So Ava. there you go. go Ava. So we got Thea ava and christopher todd Correct. all right so you guys please uh go ahead private messages on our facebook page tell us which host you want and who you want them to cover um what if they all pick barnes and barnes
4: <laughs> fish heads
5: fish heads
4: please holy don't
2: me. Fish <laughs> head. then i will quit <laughs> i can't save you i can't do anything <laughs> All right. So now, with all the business out of the way, and uh, here we are, 45 minutes into the episode, I'm just going to give our socials, guys, and I will see you <laughs> next week. Um, thank you, Tiesta. We're <laughs> out. Thank you. Our not Still not saying our website. <laughs> so uh, we are headed back into Neverland Ooh. with Michael Jackson. Art due. So, in Michael Jackson's own words, uh, not long after they had been doing really successful in the Chicago clubs, his father brought home a tape of some songs that they had never heard before. So they were to doing like popular stuff that was on the radio. So they were just curious as to why he was playing these songs over and over again with just one guy singing and some guitar chords in the background. His father told him that the man on tape wasn't a performer, but he was a songwriter who owned a recording studio in Gary. And that man's name was Mr. Keith. He had given them a week to practice the songs and see if they could make a record out of them. And naturally knowing that they were very excited. Hmm. They, they really focused on the sound. So the vocals, how to fill out that musical void that was just when he gave them the chords. So, you know, when they were doing the bongos they had to figure out that beat. And then you had, you know, them doing all the different instruments and stuff like that. But it was really hard for them because they were used to just, you know, basically what is it playing by ear playing by ear that's, Providing. That's, yes and doing popular songs so like they were doing like my girl so they would just listen to the song and know their parts and then replicate them but now they're kind of having to fill it out and there was no choreography which was something else that, that they were used to doing they would learn the song then they would figure out the choreography and now Let me tell you a funny story because Joe was like a big dude. And so they would be practicing choreography and he'd go, no, do it like this. And then he'd do some dance moves, but it was just like a bear fighting to get a shirt off. (laughs) And so, but, but he knew what he was doing. These kids were super professional. So when Joe thought that they were prepared as they were going to be, they got them on tape. They sent the tape off and waited to see if mr keith liked that tape so a week passes they don't hear anything and all of a sudden their father appears with more songs for the kids to record for their first session so this is a big deal so who is mr keith that's a good question he's gordon keith the producer who was the first person to sign a recording contract with the jackson five and release their records in 1966 keith and four friends founded Steeltown records in gary indiana each with their ability to manage record and sign local talents they found around gary keith saw uh place cards around gary advertising performances for a young group called the jackson five plus johnny because you know johnny was there playing the drums Mm -hmm. it was remember we talked about him he was not related to them but they called him like their cousin i mean considering how many jacksons there were couldn't one of them have played drums i feel this this is an anomaly well i think marlon played the bongos and tried okay. to dance and tried to sing so yeah. but i mean like drums drums they brought sticks. so he was able to get the jackson's family's phone number from a local musician the sherry brothers who liked the jackson five were t- taking lessons from shirley cartman a local music teacher so he called joe jackson and he was invited over to the jackson home And remember, this house has like two rooms and a bathroom, and if you walked through the front door, you were basically walking out of the back door. It's the, what, you can sit on the
4: toilet, answer the door, and open the window without moving? Yep. Yep.
2: As Keith recalled, they set up in the living room. The furniture was pushed back, and the equipment pretty much took up the whole room. The whole family was there. Janet was a babe in arms. They were getting ready to uh, go, and there was a thick cord that stretched between two of those amps, that Michael was near and that came up to his chest <laughs> from right. They were standing without a running start. He dr- jumped straight up from flat footed position, right over the cords to clear it. He had my attention from right then and there. So like, seriously, it was like jump rope. He just basically watched him like glide across. Cause remember Michael is a dancer. Mm. I mean, that guy could move. That guy could yeah. move. I knew I was looking at a boy who was a superhuman when they sang, Michael sang like an angel. Jermaine also had a great voice. Jackie could carry a tune, and Marlon could be in the room. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm giving Marlon shit, but I don't even know why I'm targeting Marlon. But as he said, Marlon could really dance. He said (laughs) it was like
4: Winnie the Pooh and Marlon, too, like a new book.
2: (laughs) A.A. Milne. But when Michael danced, all while singing, he blew James Brown, Jackie Wilson, Fred Astaire, anyone else you can name, he blew them all away. They sang a, a James Brown song, Cold Sweat, Jackie Wilson's Doggin' Around and Smokey Robinson and The Temptations, My Girl and Just My Imagination. Well, I was flabbergasted, knocked out, blown away, speechless, end quote. Michael Jackson was just over the age of nine when Keith signed the Jackson 5 to a management and recording contract in 1967. He recorded several singles with the group. The biggest of all was a song called Big Boy. Now, that became a local hit, and that was the song that I actually played at the end of last episode. Key's work with the Jackson 5 ultimately increased their notoriety and likely helped them attract the attention of Motown, which we will get into later. So, what came out of that recording session was the first record deal with Steeltown had two singles that were eventually released. The first one, like I said, was Big Boy, backed with You Change and We Don't Have to Be Over 21 to fall in love with Jan Sessions on the back. (laughs) Both did mediocre numbers, but the kids were thrilled to have been in a recording studio. And now I'm actually going to play you the song that is literally one of my favorite songs of all time done by any artist, but I especially love this one. We are going to listen to... The Jackson Five with my girl. The, the jackson vibes version of my girl i really liked it i would never heard that before
3: um no i've never heard it before i like the uh i mean the singing is fine i really didn't like the music that much i think it was slightly kiddified. Ding, ding 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 din- tr- din- you know what i mean it's like it, it's it was done to appeal to kids and I, I, I much prefer the it's just not the same without that boop doo. boop boo, doo. intro almost like a heartbeat intro yeah, it was, but that that was like almost done like aimed at kids. It almost sounded like, no, vocally, I mean, yeah. They killed it. I mean, it's, it oh, was really yeah. good. That part was good. The music, I, I just didn't really care for, but you, I mean, you can see the talent already, in Michael especially. Yeah, yeah, it almost
4: sounded like it would be like on Sesame Street or something, you know? Yeah.
3: Yes.
5: Yeah.
2: I mean, his voice at not, and then say what you want about you know, anything about Michael Jackson, you cannot deny that even from like an early age, he did not have vocal and dancing talent. I mean, there's not a sour note in that entire thing. So now I wish I could tell you like chronologically when this particular thing happened, but I actually couldn't find a solid date for it. So I'll just go ahead and tell you guys that at some point in 1965, They did try to get their first record through Steel Town over to the folks at Motown. So they sent it off and they waited and they waited and they waited and heard absolutely nothing from it. And three months later, it came back in a sealed envelope with absolutely no offer. Hmm. So, uh, but hold, hold that thought, okay? Now, at this point, the boys had played some pretty good clubs in Chicago and their father had signed them up for the Royal Theater Amateur Night in town. So he'd gone to see B.B. King at the Regal the night that he made that live album that I'm pretty sure is in basically every single person's vinyl collection. (laughs) I know it's in mine. I know it's absolutely in mine. Um, But that's the time when they were there, they would sweep the show three weeks straight at the Regal. Three weeks straight, they would kill it and they would win this contest and they had a new song every week to keep the regular audiences that would come in to see them just guessing. So some of these performers, other performers that were playing would complain because they said that it was greedy for them to keep going back again and again. But the Jacksons were like, dude, you're doing the same thing. You're showing up at the exact same content, just like, because we're winning. It doesn't mean that "Hmm, we shouldn't be here. (laughs) Um, yeah, you guys are showing up every
3: week too. So, you show I, up every week and you lose.
2: Yeah, so there you go. That's dedication right there. Now, there was a policy at the theater that if you won three times straight, you got invited back for a paid show for thousands of people, not the dozens of people like the audiences that they were used to playing at Mr. Lucky's and other bars. So you guys remember Mr. Lucky's in the first episode that they would they would go and play, and they'd make like $7 a night. They got an opportunity and the show that they were actually attending was headlined by Gladys Knight and the Pips. Nice. Who were breaking in a little song that no one knew at the time called I Heard It Through the Grapevine.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: Are you are you familiar with the song, Dear Will? I think, I think I've heard of the song. Yeah. Uh-huh. Grapevine, you yeah, say. Yes. Never heard of it. Yeah. It's not like we don't have all the California raisins on our shelf over here.
3: We actually do. We that have, is not a superlative. That is, no, uh, I, will, I, have a, I have a couple myself, yes.
2: I will have to post that. So <laughs> After the show, there was one more big amateur show that they felt like they needed to win which was the Apollo Theater in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh. And there was a superstition that a lot of Chicago people held that if you won the Apollo Theater, it was a good luck charm and nothing more. Now, Joseph saw it a little bit differently. He knew that New York had a higher standard for performers uh, because of things, you know, like a little strip of real estate called Broadway and Madison Square Garden. I mean, just like a couple places that you guys might have heard of. I don't know, I'm passing you uh, you heard of this uh, Madison Square Garden?
3: It's like um, a What do they grow there? Like turnips out. or? You, uh, know. you
2: know what? I'm. I think that it's mainly peaches. Yeah. Like
3: uh, yeah. I like, like peaches. peaches. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> peaches. Like uh, in a sea. Yeah. <laughs> that is like, my favorite Beatles song. You leave it alone. <laughs> is it is it James Madison's garden? I think we need clarification. <laughs> Oh, uh, it's high collars from now on, kids. So it's August of 1967, and the Jackson Five are performing at the famed Apollo. They actually got there early enough where they could get a, a guided tour of the theater, which is at 125th Street. Wait, I said that like super touristy. It is 125th, <laughs> 125th Street. 125th Like Street. I didn't ever live in New York. My bad, 125th Street. They walked through the theater, so they got to see all the photos of the stars who had played there. And the big thing is, Michael again would just stare at these photos of the black performers that came before him—people that he had actually been learning about and through, and adding to his own kind of um, stage presence. He was be, you know, like Jan. James-
3: stealing from. Just say it.
2: Yeah, he was stealing stuff but (laughs)
3: talent borrows
4: genius steals that's the
2: saying well he was a genius
4: so hey ld sorry to cut in here but we do have to take a quick break for our sponsors
0: does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late we get it great taste takes time that's why drizzly the number one app for alcohol delivery has your back with the largest selection of beer wine and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today.
2: And now we are back. Great. So let's head back to the land of the Jacksons. Now, the the thing about the Apollo is it's a theater. So therefore, it's got a good luck charm, Mm -hmm. which is a log that was supposed to have come from the fabled Tree of Hope, which is mounted on a pedestal backstage. According to legend, the Tree of Hope stood in front of Connie's, which was a a restaurant and bar that Louis Armstrong performed in the famous Harlem version of Fats Waller's Hot Chocolate. Over the years, hundreds of performers would stand under that tree and touch it for good luck. It had become a tradition. When Seventh Avenue was widened during New York City's, you know, uh, boom, the construction actually had the tree uprooted. But Bill Bojangles Robinson arranged for the Tree of Hope to be moved, and he was the one that was supposed to said to have named it, and he had it moved to 132nd Street. And eventually, the tree was cut down. Mm. Okay, all that remains of the actual tree is a plaque now in its final location, but a small log from the tree was mounted on a pedestal backstage and it became tradition for a first timer to touch the tree before they went out on stage and it would be destined to have good luck. So the- but
3: Now now that, see, see, and this is a, a little known and lesser told part of that, it actually led to a lot of problems because what did you say the guy's name was? Bill Bojangles?
2: Uh, Bill Bojangles Robinson.
3: Yeah, I, th- there was. There ended up being a ton of problems when he would walk up to performers and say, "Hey, you want to touch my log?"
2: Anyway, uh, <laughs> you're the worst when you're tired. <laughs> would you guys like to take a guess whether or not anyone in the Jackson Five touched it?
3: Some... I'm gonna say Tito was all up on that log. All right, you're on
2: Jermaine. You're going Jermaine. Okay, was Marlon? Okay, nope, it was apparently all of them. That's a trick question. All of them except for Michael who did it twice.
4: <laughs> well, we saw how that played out.
2: So he so all the kids apparently like rubbed it, took their place on stage like and then the curtain was about to open for them and Michael like ran back and rubbed it again for just, you know, a little bit of extra good luck because it must have worked because that night they won Showtime at the Apollo. I thought we were going to
4: some the effect of, and to this day, Tito is still in the tree. <laughs> well, the tree's
3: Lynch, not there anymore. It's just the law. Which, on, on a serious note, for a bunch of kids to go and win over the Apollo crowd is very impressive. That because is, they're yeah. not going to cut you slack just because you're a bunch of kids. If you suck, they will tell you that you suck. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, and what a milestone
4: right. check off, too, to play the Apollo. I mean
3: quite quite famously they will tell you that you suck yes
2: uh yeah isn't that like can't they just boo you off stage is that the stage where you get like literal hook off
3: the yes yeah. or was it somebody comes out with a broom and sweeps you off yeah Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's i know there's like something like that but yeah no yes yes, yes. they don't they do not tolerate uh suck they they will they will they will let you know you suck and you will not be on stage very long
2: <laughs> bingo yeah, so so,
3: the, so. they must have like really, really slayed
2: Yeah, I mean, like they didn't just do well, they won, which is huge. So in the book Showtime at the Apollo, the author observed that the Apollo was not just the greatest black theater, but a special place to come of age emotionally, professionally, socially, and politically. Because if you think about everyone who's been through those doors, mm. every single performer that has ever performed at the Apollo, that is like the pantheon, of an artistic achievement to yeah. be there and do well so yeah.
4: and again for them to do that at such a young age it's just
5: it's unheard of
2: yeah. yeah so also in june of 1968 uh the following single my name is jack was actually recalled in the u.s by the company mercury records complained about a phrase super spade in the lyrics which refer to a Haight ashbury drug dealer now don't worry the kids had nothing to do with this because it was Scored by Manfred Mann's Band. Yeah.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Mann's EarthBand reference of the podcast has now been satisfied. And
4: again, Manfred Mann, if you hear this if Please. you can record that, that Please. would be amazing. We would, love that. we
3: would so prefer that you actually say what I just said instead right. of me doing what I just did because it would be way cooler.
2: Now, actually taking it back to our boys in May of 1968, the group was invited back to Apollo to perform. And this time they were actually paid for their performance. And they were on the bill with somebody you might have also heard of, which was a little lady named Etta James. Huh. Oh, wow. And the Five Stairsteps, which sing one of my favorite songs of all time, called Ooh Child. Mm-hmm which is, is actually because of Guardians of the Galaxy right. has gotten more notoriety and it makes me super happy.
4: That soundtrack got so much going on there.
2: Um, I remember him being talented, Etta said of Michael. Etta James said this? Yes. Oh my God. He was so polite and so interested too. I was working on my show, doing my thing on stage. And as I'm singing, I see this little kid watching me from the wings. And I'm thinking, who is this kid? He is distracting me. So I go over between songs while people are clapping, and I whisper, "Scat kid, get lost! You're bugging me." She scared the hell out of him, and he took <laughs> off running. A few minutes later, there's this kid again standing in front of the stage, off to the side, watching me work. And after the show, uh, she was waiting in she was in her dressing room, like taking off her makeup, and a knock came at the door. And she opened it up, and it was like one of those things where it's like you're you're assuming that it's going to be an adult like standing in front mm-hmm. of you. And she said she opened up the door and no one was there. And she looked down and there's Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was like, I just wanted to apologize because I was watching you because you're so good. You're just so good. How do you do that? I've never seen people clap like that. So needless to say, Etta was a little bit flattered and she patted him on the head and said, come here. I'll teach you a few tricks. So she doesn't actually remember what she told him, but she was thinking as he was heading out the door, now there's a boy who wants to learn from the best. So one day he's going to be the best. No word on whether or not the uh, the five stair steps said anything to the kids. <laughs> so back in their home life, Joseph still ruled with an iron fist. And that even meant the telephone. No one was allowed to be on the telephone for more than five minutes because you never knew if a manager an agent or a record label was going to call. So he always wanted the line to be open. Now, at this time in July, 1986, Jackie was 17, Tito was 14, Jermaine was 13, Marlon was 10, and Michael was nine. And they played Chicago's High Shapiro Club as an opening act for a group called bobby taylor and the vancouver's we mentioned them as well last week after he saw the boys in action taylor telephoned ralph seltzer head of motown's creative department and also the head of the company's legal division and suggests that the group be allowed to audition for motown
4: the name ralph seltzer he could do that job or be a weatherman there's really no other (laughs)
3: alternative that's it
2: party clown
3: party clown yep (laughs)
2: but he has like a it's not just the flower that squirts the Mm -hmm. water it's everything like his nose the flower the buzzer on the hand i get old fast oh so wet (laughs) um so i um i had some doubts ralph would recall creative considerations aside i had concerns about their age and you know the fact is they were changing they were getting older and what happens when cute little kids that are doing rec- records, what happens to their voices when they get older. <laughs>
3: yes. When it's time to
2: change!
4: I think of that in the Wonder Years episode. Do you ever see where they do the men, men,
5: men, men?
2: No. And
4: they're falling off the riser. Oh, it's hysterical. No. It's a great episode.
2: <laughs> so, uh, he was concerned about their voices and their appearance. But there was so much excitement around them from what Bobby had told him that he was like, yeah, bring them to Detroit but somebody else had their eye on them Uh, they actually found out that someone who was at the apollo that night had recommended them to david frost in new york city and this was massive because the kids would actually be on tv they were so excited they were they were like ridiculously excited about this prospect number one they got to be on tv number two it was in new york city and david frost was pretty big at the time Mm -hmm. the kids are ready they're they're packed they got super excited they were ready to go they were they were jazz they had taken home their like homework for the rest of the week to be able to do the show but unfortunately it was canceled the Ooh. kids were almost in tears they were shocked they were about to get their big break how could they cancel why had uh, mr foster changed his mind joseph held up his hand as the kids were like causing a stir and he said i'm the one that canceled it what the kids were furious and he said everybody calm down Motown called. So this time the kids packed up and they pointed their bus toward Detroit. Joseph had a typewritten directions because, God, I remember the days where you had to make it without your phone. MapQuest? MapQuest <laughs> or Thomas guy. Oh, the
4: Thomas guy. Show of
2: hands. Who had a Thomas guy? Oh, right here. Where, I had one. Everybody had one. Yes. So uh, Joseph was a little bit nervous about whether or not the hotel was going to be fine because Motown had actually had actually picked out the hotel. Now, you guys know how much of a control freak Joseph is. So Joseph wasn't used to people doing things for them. And they ended up staying at a place called the Gotham Hotel. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Gotham Hotel. It is one of the most legendary sites of Black history in Detroit. The building stood at 111 Orchestra Park at John R., about two blocks south of Alexandria Street. And literally the amount of African-American black artists who stayed there is a who's who. It was Jackie Robinson, Langston Hughes, Ella Fitzgerald, Sammy Davis Jr., Billie Holiday. And with more and more African-Americans moving to the city for good paying factory jobs, Detroit was in need of something that was more than a motel, more than a hotel but fancier. And indeed, the city entered the 40s, there are only seven or eight hotels that served the Black community in Detroit, if you could even call them that. Some were nothing but flop houses. Black people from Detroit, I don't know, Detroiters were deserving of something better. And so they built the Gotham which was considered a monument to our race and noting that its location was in a refined neighborhood. It was a testament that African-Americans were making progress in Detroit. So that, that hotel, I almost feel like was chosen for them to show them that Motown genuinely did care, genuinely wanted to craft them and believed in them because why put them in a spot With so much history so much musical black musical history you could have stuck them at a holiday Inn, you know so the kids knew that it was going to be difficult to judge whether or not they were doing a good job because they weren't used to having to audition (laughs) and be that kind of professional they were used to audiences at clubs and you guys understand like i know you're honey you were sort of on the the path to acting but you did when you would do shows didn't you feed your fuel off of what the audience was giving back to you
4: oh absolutely and that happens in public presentations and you know things i've done you know in more of a corporate setting but yeah the the rules still apply and yes i have been accused of performing in the past
2: yeah yeah so when i was on stage there is a difference between doing a film or doing tv which i've done both and being on stage i've done off broadway and it's so much easier to do stage productions because you feed off of the audience's responses mm-hmm. and you know oh i can push this a little bit more so it's got to be difficult when there's absolutely no feedback and that's what happened when i when i auditioned for shows you get nothing. They don't even look at you. And in fact, if you're doing an audition for acting now, they ask for flat reads. Mm -hmm. So that's like somebody giving you nothing to even bounce off with performance-wise.
4: Oh no, Debbie, why did you do that?
2: Yes. And then you've got to take that and go, I didn't mean to. (laughs) Okay, thank you. That's. I have a flat tire.
4: (laughs) Acting Brilliant.
2: So their father assured them that the longer they played, the more that they liked them. So, you know, say if they did one or two songs, they probably did okay. Three or four songs, they, you know, they probably liked them a lot more because there wouldn't be that clapping at the, even at the end, there wouldn't be any clapping. So Jermaine was the first one to spot the studio known as Hitsville USA. And it looked rundown, which is not what they were expecting. (laughs) They found a a parking spot in front of a cluster of bungalows on West Grand Boulevard. A quote from Michael in the book Moonwalk. When we got inside, they found a lot. When they got inside, we found a lot of people waiting. But dad said a password to a man in a shirt and tie that came out and met us. He even knew our names. He said, hello, and he shook our hands. And he asked us to leave our coats in the lobby and follow him. The other people just stared at us like we were ghosts. I wondered who they were and what their stories were and how far they had traveled. Had they been there all day hoping to get in without an appointment? Well, I got into the room and noticed that the camera was being set up, and then Ralph Setzer appeared. He shook the hand of each boy and then Joseph's and said that they had heard a lot about the group, and he apologized because Mr. Gordy was not there. Hmm. What do you mean Mr. Gordy is not here? Joseph asked without even able to hide his disappointment. Seltzer explained that Barry was actually in Los Angeles and Joseph said that they would reschedule the audition. In his words, he wanted his sons to audition for the boss, not his underlings. Not a good start, Joseph. Let's not play No. He seems to have a lot though. Yeah. Seltzer said that they were gonna film the audition and when he got back from the West Coast, he would make a decision. So the audition started. Michael said, the first song that we'd like to do is James Brown's, I Got the Feeling. Okay, when they finished, no one clapped. But everyone was writing feverishly in their notepad. Not sure what to do. The kids looked at their father and he nodded them and they started to sing another song. Awkwardly, Michael thanked them as if, you know, he's talking to an audience. And then they started Tobacco Road. And from the audience, barely audible, you could hear someone say, I think they're great. So they did another song. And then for their last performance, they sang, Who's Loving You? And when that one ended, no one applauded or even said a word. And not getting that instant gratification, like all performers crave, Michael just blurted out, how was that? And Jermaine was like, shut up. (laughs) And that was it. Seltzer walked over to him, said, I'd like to thank you for coming. His voice gave absolutely nothing away, so the kids were left gobsmacked and confused. I'll be in touch, Ralph said. The man who had led them up said thank you for coming, and they led them to the front door. They got back into their car and went back to Gary. Two days later, Barry Gordy saw the 16 millimeter black and white film and quickly made his decision. Yes, absolutely sign these kids up they're amazing don't wait sign them so on july 26 1968 ralph seltzer summoned joseph to his motown office for a meeting. During the two-hour conference, he explained that Barry Gordy was interested in signing the Jackson 5 to the label and then outlined the kind of relationship he hoped the company would be able to develop with the Jackson youngsters. These kids are going to be big. Seltzer presented uh, Joseph with the standard nine-page contract from Motown. It never occurred that he would probably need to bring... A legal counsel to such an important meeting and seltzer hadn't suggested it because why would he it's in his best interest to not have legal counsel for someone who is signing a a contract and based on what we've seen of previous
4: artists we've covered nine pages does not seem like a lot no there's usually a phone book of stuff that they don't read and that's what gets them in trouble
2: but also the thing is i think it's a very concise Contract and no one was allowed to take the contract home and look it over. So, oh,
3: that's yeah, that's that's usually a red flag it was, uh,
2: frowned upon, but yeah, but Motown wants to sign you. So, what do you do? Yeah,
3: the I think you go. <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. I'm gonna I'm yeah. just gonna do that in every episode.
2: Fair enough. The seltzer began with clause number one, which stated that the agreement was for a term of seven years. And immediately Joseph is like, no, 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 no. That's too long. He's got a point. It should only be one year. Now that is unheard of with a Motown artist. The minimal agreement is five years because it takes that long to develop somebody and see a return on the company's investment, which I can kind of sort of see that. Who was it that we were talking about that? Like Whitney, she hadn't made a, she she was signed and they didn't make an album. They didn't make an album and they didn't make an album. So it took it t- almost two years. Yeah. yeah. So it takes a while for you to get the artists developed, recorded, mixed, and put them out there and then start seeing a return on your investment. So Ralph picked up the telephone and called Mr. Gordy. He explained the problem and handed the phone to Joseph, whom Barry had never met. And uh, after the conversation, Joseph hung up. He said he's going to think about it. Joseph told Ralph. Two minutes later, the phone rang again, and it was, again, Barry who wanted to talk to Joseph. explained to Joseph, as far as he was concerned, the real issue is a basic matter of trust. If Joseph was really going to believe that Barry Gordy and Motown would have the best interests of the kids in mind, he, he was willing to pay for their accommodations, recording sessions, rehearsal time for seven years. Now, however, if Joseph insisted on changing the clause, then it would be changed because he wanted what was best for the kids. Hmm. So Joseph smiled, gave the thumbs up and Seltzer got back on the phone. And after a couple minutes, he had an assistant come into the office, take some dictation for, from Gordy. And about five minutes later, she returned with a new clause which stated the group was obligated to be under the Motown umbrella for only one year. Joseph beamed because he thought he had won a strategic battle against the Barry Gordy. No, 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 no. <laughs> hold yeah. for a second. No, no, Let's no. just hold on to that thought for one second. Ralph quickly explained the rest of the contract and Joseph nodded his head, called the boys into the office and said, we got it boys, Joseph announced. And the kids were in a flurry. They were congratulated by Ralph Seltzer and a firm handshake, Joseph. And he said, let me be the first one to welcome you to Motown. Mm. So after leaving Ralph Seltzer's office, Joseph telephoned Richard Aaron, a man who had, he had hired as their lawyer and sort of the group's unofficial co-manager. Joseph called me up and said that he had signed with Motown and there wasn't much I could do or offer at that point. (laughs) So the guy you had as your legal counsel, you went ahead and signed a major contract with a major label without counsel. (laughs) So yeah, I guess there's not much you can do once you sign the contract. And it's easy to understand why Joseph would just sign a deal. It was Motown. We're talking Motown. However, there were a couple problems with the contract. Yeah. And a lot of them will cause problems for the family later down the road, which I'm pretty sure that somehow I will shoehorn into another episode. But the big ones were Clause 5, for example, which stated that the Jackson 5 would be unable to record for any other label at any time prior to the expiration of five years. Okay. Okay, so what Joseph thought was a win in only giving the kids one year actually locked him into a six-year contract. Ouch. So the kids would have the protection for one year. And then after that, five years would have to pass before they could report for anybody else. Oof. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah. So uh, another one stated that Motown would choose all the songs that the groups would record, and the groups would record each song until Motown execs were pleased with it. However, they weren't obligated to release any of those recordings. So basically, just because a song was recorded and they spent their time recording it wouldn't be issued to the public, and they wouldn't get any cash.
5: Hmm.
2: And so speaking of cash, I don't actually want to get into the money aspect of that because you know the contract is never suited for the artist, okay?
3: Almost never.
2: Yeah, another crazy part of the clause basically said that if anyone left the group, that they weren't allowed to say that they were part of the Jackson Five. Now, there's already a precedent for this. When Florence Ballard was fired from the Supremes in 1967, she wasn't able to promote herself as being a member of that group. Her biography for ABC, when she signed to that label as a solo artist in 68, only stated that she was a member of a popular female singing group. It's the freaking Supremes. (laughs) Yeah, well, she couldn't say that she was a member of it because she broke contract. Wow. And this could cause a big problem for the Jackson 5, even though Joseph might not have realized it at the time. This also meant that Motown could, at any time or place, change a member of the group without telling anyone. In other words, if Tito acted up, he could be bounced from the act and replaced by someone else selected by Motown. Not even Joseph could pick, and it didn't have to be harvested from the kids he already had. Like, they could throw in another kid. Oh, yikes. But the most limiting was clause number 16. That stated Motown owns all the rights, titles, interest in the names Jackson 5 and the Jackson 5. Wow. In other words, they may have gone to the company as the Jackson 5, they weren't going to be leaving that way. When the Supremes wanted to leave the label in 1972, they were welcome to go, but they would have to change the group's name to something else. And so they actually stayed on the label. Hmm. So on the 26th of July, 1968, a tiny little signature was added to a sheet of paper in barely legible handwriting. Michael Jackson signed the deal, Michael Joseph Jackson. Just as a side note, the signature actually meant nothing because he was nine and a minor,
3: <laughs> Which, that's what I, I was actually about to ask it, that at a certain point, these are, these are all legal minors. This can't yes. possibly be bi- legally binding, can it? Well, not
2: really. Huh. Joseph was the, the real mouthpiece. This, the, the entity that was signing it for his kids, but they did this as a formality to make the kids feel like they were actually a part of the Motown family and the process. So they would give everyone a contract, so it was not legally binding because he is a minor. But it was just a really cute little thing they did for them. I think it's adorable. It
3: no, look, no, look, look how, look how, uh, how cutely we're uh, screwing you.
2: <laughs> Pretty much adorable. Immediately after signing to the label, the Jacksons began to record at the Motown Studios under the direction of Bobby Taylor who had really discovered them in Chicago. Uh, and this will become a thing in a little bit as another character gets introduced. that You guys all probably know, but he was the one I feel like actually discovered them in Chicago. But Mr. Keith was the one I think actually, you know, a lot of people are credited with discovering them, but I think Mr. Keith is kind of the nexus. And then Bobby Taylor, who discovered them in Chicago. So those were like the two. Now, someone gets introduced in just a couple of minutes. And you'll see why it was like, oh, that's why you said Mm -hmm. that. So over the few months, they would spend their weeks in Gary attending school and weekends and as well as some weeknights uh, sleeping on the floor of Taylor's apartment as they were recording for Motown. They recorded 15 songs, most of which would surface later on their albums. Now, at Christmas time, Barry Gordy, you know, since we're almost Christmas, we're getting Christmassy. Mm -hmm. You know how much I love Christmas before thanksgiving yeah um so christmas time barry gordy hosted a party at the detroit estate that he had purchased in 1967 for around a million dollars which is like what seven million now was it 1960-something? 1960 1967. That's probably, was, that. probably a lot of money. Yeah. I can't fathom that much money. That's a that's load stu- of money. That's stupid money. So the Jacksons were asked to perform at a party for the big Motown artists and other Gordy's friends. and this was, this was actually a really big deal. Uh, Michael would say, I would never forget that night. There were maids and butlers, and everyone was really polite. There were Motown stars everywhere. Smokey Robinson was there. And that's when I met him for the first time. The Temptations were there. And uh, so I was really, really nervous. And I look out into the audience and there was Diana Ross. And (laughs) I almost lost it. Wow. So the boys performed and Barry introduced Diana to the boys. She looked regal in a white draped silk gown. She had her hair pulled back. And she said, I want to tell you how much I enjoyed you guys, she said. And she shook their hands mr gordy tells me that we're going to be working together Mm -hmm. we are michael asked yes we are diana smiled so whatever i can do to to assist you that's what i'm going to do diana was warm and sincere and she turned to michael and said you are so cute and then pinched his cheeks (laughs) Did you just need just diana ross is grabbing your face i'm sorry the thought of little Michael with his big chubby cheeks and he's just singing and dancing. Diana in little, Ross is there? Yes, she, Diana Ross is there. Uh, it's great. So in August of 67, Gordy wanted Joseph and his five sons and Johnny Jackson and Ronnie Ransford to move to Los Angeles. So if you guys remember uh, Johnny, John on the drums and Ronnie Ransford, I think was playing the keyboard at the time. Johnny
4: was the unofficial Jackson, is that right? Yes. Yeah.
2: And Ronnie was a permanent member as well.
5: Yeah.
2: Uh, but that he wanted them all to move to Los Angeles because Michael was born a star. He would later say in an interview, he was a classic example of understanding everything. I recognized that he had a depth that was so vast that it was just incredible. The first time I saw him, I saw a little kid And I saw something really special. So Joseph, Tito, Jack, Johnny, and Ronnie, God, these names, Mm -hmm. drove to Los Angeles in the family's new Dodge Maximum. Isn't that awesome? They have a new van. Motown paid for Jaggy, Jermaine, Marlon, and Michael's flight out a few days later. It was Joseph's decision to not move the entire family out of Gary to Los Angeles until it was absolutely certain that their future would be secure. So Catherine, Janet, Randy, and Latoya all stayed behind in Gary. Barry registered the family at one of the seediest motels at the Tropicana on (laughs) Sunset Boulevard. I don't actually know this place. Do you? I feel like I've probably Uh, passed it a thousand times, but...
4: I I feel like it's probably been torn down and rebuilt. Maybe.
2: I mean, the thing is, there are some... There's, like, no medium in Hollywood. It is either a gorgeous hotel, like the Roosevelt, the Knickerbocker, like the W, like these super fancy or it's just a place that looks like someone's going to get murdered. Hmm. So Michael, Marlon, and Jermaine shared one room while Tito and Jackie were another, and Joseph was just down the hall. It really didn't matter that it was seedy because none of his family spent much of their time in their rooms. They spent most of it in Hollywood Studio rehearsing and recording, and Hollywood Studio still exists. Hollywood Studio? yeah. I think it's actually near your old building. on Sunset? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I know where that is. Yes. Yes, it is still there. It is still there. Mm-hmm. And it's a very unassuming building. Yeah, you wouldn't know it's if like, I'm looking at it. I think I'm pretty sure if, if I'm thinking correctly, it is just a brick building with one door, no windows. Something like that, yeah. Eventually, Gordy pulled the family out of the Tropicana and moved them into the Hollywood Motel, which is across the street from Hollywood Highland. And I know this exact location. And it was even more dreadful than the Tropicana, maybe, <laughs> mainly because there were a lot of sex workers just peddling their wares and pimps that used the grounds to conduct their business. Yeah, before Hollywood Highland moved in there, it I was mean, a seedy area. Was, yeah. it, it had its heyday in like mm-hmm. the 40s and 50s. Sure. By the 60s, it was getting dirty. By the 70s, it was crap. Yes. And then like slowly but surely, it built it back up. But it used to be a really dangerous place.
5: Oh,
4: yeah.
2: And now it's super touristy. Now it's so, like Disneyland, yeah. So the kids, though, <laughs> they, they didn't care because, A, they were living in California, working under Motown as recording artists. For them, that was a slice of heaven compared to Gary. Hmm. so at some point they actually ran into diana ross again and she told them that if there was anything that she could do to, for them just to let her know what Jermaine remembers most about the day they ran into diana ross again she showed them a telegram and she said that's from me to lots and lots of people it read please join me in welcoming brilliant musicians the jackson five on monday the 11th of august 6 30 to 9:30 p.m. at the daisy on north rodeo drive beverly hills the jackson five featuring a sensational eight-year-old michael jackson will perform live at the party signed diana ross after they read it michael was like i think you made a mistake i am not eight i am 10 <laughs> and barry was like not anymore you are eight Barry explained that it was a matter of public relations. It's all about your image. It's all about public relations. So Michael parroted back that he was eight, not 10. He decided that, <laughs> he decided at an early age, if someone said something to him that it wasn't true, it was a lie. But if someone said something about his image that wasn't true, that was okay because it wasn't a lie. It was public relations. And I think that we can all agree that we probably stick with him for a very long time. Yes, it would yes so as promised on august 11th 1968 diana ross introduced the new protege the jackson five with all the bells and whistles 300 of barry and diana's closest friends and business associates crammed into the chic private club the daisy which is located in beverly hills this was barry and diana's closest friends and business associates these are people that can make or break the jackson's legacy they stood and cheered as Michael and the Jackson Five were introduced by Diana and performed Motown songs such as Smokey Robinson's Who's Loving You and the Disney classic Zippity Doodah. So I wanna play that song right now because it is too darn cute. So from the album, the collection, Diana Ross presents the Jackson Five. Here is Zippity Doodah. <laughs> back. What do you guys
3: think? Um very similar to the last song we heard. The music maybe was a little a step more sophisticated than their version of My Girl, but it, it had a, like an a little bit of an early disco vibe almost to me. Yes. But the I mean but again the vocals uh, vocally it was it was very good.
2: Yeah.
4: Reminded me very much of a musical I'm sure we're going to cover in uh, the not so distant future.
2: In the not so yeah. distant future. Yes. We will be covering the whiz yes (laughs) do not know um awesome so after the kids concluded their performance they actually had a small reception and barry announced that the jackson five would appear in concert with diana ross and the supreme at the forum five days later i mean that's a that's a bomb to drop on children oh yeah by the way you're gonna be playing like a major arena with a major star in a less than a week and how old is she at this point she's 24 so she's young beautiful and very talented and very famous so she took on the hosting duties at the hollywood palace theater television show now i'm going to cover that in the next episode because there was a -a hubbub that happened when they did something televised with diana ross i
3: think i think this is depicted in that jackson family miniseries
2: Yes. We will get to it though. So don't, yes, don't, yes, don't blow this, don't, don't blow the secret. Now the kids were still in school at this time, but what happens when you start gaining notoriety, people start recognizing you and people start invading your life and the kids could not have a normal schedule at school. Number one, because all the kids knew them would hear them and would start following them around, but people would stalk His school they would look through the windows in classes and try to get autographs during school so it became impossible for the kids so they were each given a tutor to teach them now during this period there was a lady named Susie DePasse and she was having great effect on their lives she trained the kids once they moved to Los Angeles and she kind of became the the manager for the Jackson 5 And they even lived with her. So she was super influential in their career. Suzanne showed the kids charcoal sketches of the five of them. And all of them had different hairstyles and a color drawing with all different pictures of different clothes that could be switched around like color form. Hmm. And after that, they had all decided on the hairstyle that they wanted. And they went to a barber and they got cut. And then Suzanne would take them to the wardrobe department where they would be given outfits to try on and they would do this until they all found costumes that were perfect fits for the kids. Mm. They would also have classes in manners and grammar and they would be given a list of questions and it would be questions that one would expect to be asked during things like press conferences and any sort of media relation Mm. thing. So the kids were asked about their interests and their hometown and, and how they like singing together and And Michael, you can see him starting to turn into public property at this point. People were becoming interested in him solely for his talent and for his music. And so Motown would grill them on manners and the questions, everything. It was a machine. You guys understand, like, they have never been offered the chance just to be kids. No,
3: no. And, and, Motown was was pretty famous i think for that kind of i mean all encompassing 360 approach to we're going to dress you we're going to tell you how to answer questions we're going to like literally everything is going to be laid out and it's going to be drilled into your head and you're just going to regurgitate it when you're supposed to
4: build a celebrity basically
2: yeah right and it was everything from the hair to the, the from the hair on your head to the facial hair cuz you know the kids are getting a little older and so you know it was you're going to wear this. You're going to sing this. You're going to do this. This is the, how you answer the questions. This is everything. It was, it was a literal machine, and they were just cranking out these kids. But what I'm going back to the fact that these kids never had a childhood. From Michael at age five, he was rehearsing three hours a day, whether he wanted to or not. Then he went straight from his father's iron grip on the family to Mr. Keith, who would send them songs. He would have to learn them, record them. That took discipline. He's only 10 now, and he's having to do things like pick out his own haircut from a selection that Motown has given him to the costumes, and he's basically being told, this is what you say, this is what you do, we're giving you tutors, so he doesn't even get to go have that time in school where he could possibly be a kid. I mean, I can't even imagine that. He spent his entire life being a performer and never got to be a child.
3: Yeah, that ends up being real healthy later on.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. What? We, no. No, Ill,
3: no, Ill, no ill effects that I ever heard of.
2: Yeah. Nothing odd about that. Nope. Okay. At this time, the kids were given a little song to learn called I Want You Back. <laughs> The song had a story behind it that they found out little by little. It was written by someone from Chicago named Freddie Perrin. It had been Jerry Butler's pianist when he opened up for Jerry in a Chicago club one night. He felt sorry for these little kids in the club that the owner had hired, figuring the club couldn't afford to get anyone else. His opinion had drastically changed when he saw them perform. According to Michael... I Want You Back was originally called I Want to Be Free and was written for Gladys Knight. He gave it to Motown and they gave it to the kids. But he he put two and two together and realized those were the same kids that he had seen perform in that bar. And he just trusted it to fate and said, go ahead, give it to the kids. Mm. So it did not go to Gladys Knight. Which, by the way, going to Gladys Knight would not have been the worst thing in the world. Change the world as we know it. I'm thinking not. Yeah, no, but I'm so glad that it ended up in the lap of the Jackson 5. So when they were learning the songs from Steeltown back in Gary, Tito and Jermaine had to pay special attention because they were responsible for playing on those records. When they heard the demo for I Want You Back, they listened to the guitar and bass parts, but Joseph explained, you don't have to do that because you don't have to play on the records. The rhythm track would be taken care of before any vocals were ever put down. Now he did remind them that they would have to keep practicing because they would have to do it in front of a live audience. So Michael and his brothers recording for Motown was an exciting experience. The team that worked on them shaped their music and constant repetitiveness of having to record over and over perfectly actually worked in their favor because of the work ethic that Joseph had instilled in them before that whole do it to you get it right. Mm -hmm. So they didn't ever make a fuss. So they were kind of a dream in the studio because they're just, oh, you need to make this adjustment. They would do that. Then they would lay it down again and they could cut a track over and over for four weeks until they got it right. And I don't think that they minded because you could actually see an improvement with every single cut. Mm. So they would change words. They would change arrangements. They would change rhythm. They would change everything, but the kids could adapt really easily to it and they were very accepting to change. Barry Gordy had an ear and he would say something like, let's make the guitar a little drier. And the kids would understand that lingo. They would do it and it would make it sound better. So The kid's ability to take direction with Barry's ear would create these amazing songs. And so I have two dates for this. One, I have a release date of November of 1969. And that's according to Michael Jackson's own book, Moonwalk. And according to Wikipedia, it was October. So I'm going to leave it up to you, our audience, for who you guys trust but it doesn't matter if it was one month or the next because it sold two million copies in six weeks and went to number one. Wow. So a couple things about I want you back. It was inducted into the Grammy hall of fame in 1999. I want you back ranks number 104 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. And it also ranks ninth on Rolling Stone's list of the hundred greatest pop songs since 1963 which is an odd date to choose but whatever rolling stone you're on your own path anyway Mm -hmm. uh in 2020 it was ranked number two on rolling stone's greatest debut singles of all time i've got a i'd love to know what number one was i should have looked that up oh yeah i'm curious it's probably elvis or the beatles yeah i will try uh, in 2006, Pitchfork named it the second best song in the 1960s, adding that the chorus contains possibly the best chord progression in pop music mm-hmm. history. Agree. Mm-hmm. And in June 2009, article by the Daily Telegraph calls it arguably the greatest pop record of all time. Digital Spy calls the song one of the most endearing pop singles of the 60s. According to Acclaimed Music, it is the 45th most celebrated song in popular music, and the second best song of 1969. The single has been awarded Silver uh, Certification on August 22nd, 2014 by the British Phonographic Industry Association. I Want You Back has long been considered one of the most sampled songs in (laughs) all of hip hop music. (laughs) It has been sampled over 60 times since its release by artists including Jay-Z, The Notorious B.I.G. and Justin Bieber. The song was included in the soundtrack for the 2014 film Guardians of the Galaxy. And that's where I'm going to end this episode mm-hmm. with a song that started it all. Here is I Want You Back. But we're going to say our goodbyes before we do that. So our socials. we're going to do our socials. You act like I don't remember we have to do our socials. If you think we're doing a good job on the show and you want to throw some coin our way, we would love that. You can do it at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. And as an aside note, if you guys could, if you're loving the show, head over to Apple Music and give us a five star rating and write a review. It only takes a second, but it really helps the show out. If you're not going to give us five stars, please email us first and talk to us about that, because I want an open dialogue with you guys. So uh, if you want to hang out with us on Twitter, that's at Rock and Roll LT. Our Instagram, Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rockandrollheaven at gmail.com and make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon Podcasts, pantheonpodcast.com, and make sure you get your order in for Tiesta T Rock Heaven 15. All this will be in the show notes along with the application if you guys still want to audition for the show that I'm working on. where uh, It's a rodeo show, and we are looking for tie-down ropers, barrel racers and saddle bronc riders and that is about all i got to say so from all of us here rock and roll heaven to all of you out there just remember the light of the tunnel might be your stupid neighbor who's already putting up christmas decorations before thanksgiving should be illegal don't do that be good to each other and think about each other all right tj do you want to say anything i think he fell asleep again Travis. Yeah, he might have. I, he, he might, might have, have actually him. he might have fallen asleep.
4: <laughs> well, Travis right. says good night, everybody.
2: Tra- Travis is asleep. He I'm sure, I'm sure that he would say, Bye, everybody. From his in his little voice. I don't know how he did. Bye, everybody. I
4: think it's good. Okay, uh, I think I, we, okay. I think it's like
2: that. he's in the room. Yep. And he is in the room, but he's probably just asleep. <laughs> All right. Would you like to say good night? Good night and good luck, everybody. (laughs) Guys, I hope you have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Please make sure that you get a designated driver if you choose to drink or an Uber or a Lyft or anything. Just remember, guys, we are big advocates here for not drinking and driving. So I hope you guys have a luscious Thanksgiving. We will talk to you guys next week. So here is the Jackson 5 with the seminal song song of 1969, the one that started it all, everybody's first opportunity to hear Michael Jackson's voice, backed by the other four Jacksons, here is, I want you back. 92%